Welcome to the Accelibility Podcast. This is a brand new series of conversations on success with people who happen to have a disability. Together, we'll uncover the attitudes, habits, techniques, and practices that enable these individuals to achieve astounding success. Oh, wait a minute. I probably was able to get successful at doing this because of my dyslexia. It's the different thinkers, uh, people with a different perspective that change the world. There's always a positive, and, and just make sure you're spending as much time focusing on the positive as you are trying to deal with the negative. Parents were right. I am going to work in a factory the rest of my life. You know, the only thing I think they missed was that I was going to, you know, own the factory too. Hello there, and welcome again to the Accelibility Podcast. I'm your host Jack Chen. Today we speak with entrepreneur and businessman Steve Walker. Steve founded and served as the CEO of New England Wood Pellet Company a multi-million dollar public company which he recently sold. New England Wood Pellet serves the energy needs of over 100,000 customers in the United States. Growing up with dyslexia, Steve's parents told him that if he didn't work hard, he would grow up working in a factory. In fact, that's exactly what he did. The only difference is that when he grew up, Steve would come to own the factory. You can find information about this podcast and previous and future episodes at www.teamaccelability.com. That's www.teamexcelability.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Team Accelibility or on Twitter at Team Accelibility. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for being with us today and for sharing your thoughts and ideas we really had an interesting life, and I'm really excited to be able to have the opportunity to chat with you and have our listeners learn from your experience. Look forward to it. Cool. Let's get started. Steve, can you describe your disability to someone who might not already know what it's like to have that disability? Say, describe what it's like in your day-to-day life and some of the impacts that it has. Yeah, well, dys- dyslexia it kind of manifests itself in different ways, I think. And for every person, it's different. For myself, it's pretty, pretty classic. Basically, uh, yeah, I had an incredible challenge with reading. You can just forget spelling. And remembering things such as names, phone numbers is kind of particularly challenging. It turns out that just about everything requires reading in our society. And I literally got right up to high school essentially not reading at all. I could kind of read, I could write some letters, sort of. But if you look at my letters, you're going to find that I'm using probably about 1% of my verbal vocabulary in those letters. Like I figured out a bunch of words I could write. And so really limits you. What's that reading experience like? If you could help folks who don't even understand the first thing about dyslexia, what's it like to read for you? The way I like to describe it because it is a bit confusing. If I take a test, it, it shows that I just have, you know, whatever, a second grade reading level or something. But 
I think that's oversimplifying it. Um, so the way I like to describe it, it'd be like if you took um, a piece of written material and just start turning the lights down to the point that you can read it, but barely, and you're probably going to miss some stuff and make some mistakes. And if you try that, then I think you'll feel what I feel. It, it's tiring. It's difficult. And you end up reading so slowly that, that you start losing track of what it is you're even reading. By the time you get to the bottom of the page, you don't know what happened at the You've top You've forgotten of the page. already. Yeah. You know, my brain is like, it's one part of my brain being consumed by this trying to, you know, sort of like if you're staring at the page and trying to understand it. Well, the rest of my brain's like out there, you know, pretty, pretty easily distracted. So <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be reading while thinking about other things. And, and, I, and I think everyone knows that that's not going to result right. in really right. comprehending what's in front of you. So it's the fact that, as you mentioned, that you get distracted, you're thinking about other things, you're not concentrating fully on what you're reading. So obviously that's going to make it even doubly more difficult. What's it like for someone who has dyslexia to begin to try to even spell? In my case, and in most cases, I think spelling, it just, it just isn't an option. It, it basically, your spelling is purely phonetic. And so you sound it out, and that's what you're going to write out. You may think, eh, how bad can it be? Well, there's a lot of words. I don't get the first letter right. And if you don't get that right, it really kind of throws readers. And, and so I find most people can get through my writing because I do occasionally have to communicate that way. But I, I certainly don't do it to anyone that I have not warned or talked to. Uh, so assistance people work for me, that's a place that I, I might write a note, but I, I avoid it. And things like a check, boy, I, that's bad. I, I mean, I've written probably, I don't know, two or three checks in the last 15 years. I, it's only when I'm stuck and something has to happen. And then, of course, now what I'll do is I'll Google what it is I want to write, and it will just come up, or I'll go on and send like a text to myself so I can get the spelling. And I just have to go letter by letter by letter and put it on the check just to make sure it doesn't come back to me, which has happened in the past. To someone who doesn't know who Steve Walker is, now I know you started several businesses. Tell people a little bit about your business career. My business career started pretty young because I like to include everything. You know, I literally started selling strawberries to neighbors out of my mother's garden as a kid because there was extra, you know, and she just was leaving there. I'm like, hey, I'll pick them and sell them. I had no idea what money was or what the value was. But when you're kind of failing at everything else, it was pretty cool. You know, I could go pick strawberries, put them in a wagon, put them in little, those little green um, papery uh, uh, cartons and sell them. And people seemed really happy and I felt like I was accomplishing something. So I think my business career sort of started by trying to escape the rest of my reality. But then that uh, progressed up to then mowing lawns for many of these same folks that I was selling, uh, as it turns out, highly discounted strawberries to, you know, cutting lawns. I got money out of it, but it wasn't really money that I was looking for. I just needed a purpose and, and I needed to cut lawns. I could, you know, you, you, you start with a poor looking hard and it ends up looking nice and a customer's happy and kind of like selling the strawberries that work well. So I really like trying to solve problems for people. And when it hit its peak, uh, which was a couple of years after high school, uh, yeah, I had 12 full-time people. We were mowing approximately well, just about 300 uh, yards we were taken care of. And then I also got into building tennis courts and stone walls and landscapes and 
couple garages and never made money on any of the things I did that were new. And at this point, I needed to make money. So I started <laughs> to really understand what the value of money was, especially <laughs> when you ran out of it. This last company that, that I sold, you know, we were making this renewable fuel. And when we started up the factories, I mean, the pride, I, it was, well, I knew I didn't contain it because everybody around me just you would think we were solving all of the world's problems at once right then and there. I took a great deal of pride in putting together complex systems and getting them to work and and then doing something right. My way my mind works is for all the challenges of being able to read, one of the things I can do pretty fluently is sort of kind of see the forest through the trees, if you will, just see the bigger picture and sometimes to a fault. And it's just great to have a complicated system get up and running. And, um, and this, this last company also was doing a really good thing. I mean, we were, we were creating a renewable energy source ultimately to 100,000 customers. Can you tell us about the moment that you finally realized, hey, I've got dyslexia? What was that like for you emotionally and psychologically? Well, it's happened a few times. <laughs> uh, and that may <laughs> sound crazy. Uh, I mean, the first time was back when, you know, in school and it was right around the third grade that I, I realized that I was really different. I, I mean, I realized that I was broken. I realized that I was mentally defective, uh, which, by the way, even teachers uh, referred to it as, as, a, as like a mental disease at the time and possibly still do occasionally. I mean, th this has got to be fixed. But by the time I got into third grade, there was there was no it was pretty clear this wasn't going to just go away. There wasn't a pill for it. And from there, going all the way through high school, this was, um, it was horrible, really. People kind of say, oh, I wish I was young again. Well, well, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to go through that again. Uh, not for anything. You know, you're not able to do anything right, basically. So that was, that was kind of a really demoralizing time. Do you have a particularly vivid memory of when you started realizing that you did have a challenge from your dyslexia or just that this is this is going to be a problem yeah it, it's yeah vivid to the point that I had to work through this one in therapy it was you know you get those those pieces of yellow paper with the uh, light blue lines and you have a dotted line and a line under that solid line under that and you're trying to learn you know your letters and everyone's in there spelling pig and jig and cat and sitting in those classrooms those are kind of like the first sort of quizzes where you know, the teacher wasn't really just talking at you. They they said, all right, here's what you got to write. Started saying words, and we were expected to write it down on the page. And and I was just looking around, and everyone, like, put their pencils down, and all these letters were coming out, and they sure looked like they knew what they were doing. And I, I just looked at these lines and looked at my pencil, and, and then I would try to look over at what they were doing, and then I would get scolded at because I wasn't supposed to be looking at what other people were doing. I was supposed to be looking at the piece of paper, but it was like staring into a black hole. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. I, I, I know I was supposed to like get letters, but I mean, it was just like someone was talking to me in another language. I, I had no idea. I imagine that's an incredibly damaging situation to be in. Yeah, it's pretty damaging, um, to say the least. I mean, fortunately, I had well-educated parents that, that were determined to have me be well-educated and, and took this thing as a crisis-level situation, uh, which, you know, had some good news to it and some bad news to it. And so I, you know, I spent quite a bit of time seeing professionals that were trying to, one, decode what it is that was wrong with me, understand what the problem was, and two, then come up with solutions to, to fix it. 
yeah, that was not fun. I mean, look, when you're a kid, all you want to do is be like the other kids. And I kept getting hauled out to these specialists and, and they were, you know, psychologists. And, you know, I was old enough or, or aware enough to, to know that these were psychologists. And that, that was not a, you know, at the time, that's not a good thing to see. Like, this is, the, you know, something's really wrong with you. I mean, I think they all had good intention, the professionals, trying to figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. But, you know, it wasn't a lot known about dyslexia then. And the teachers were certainly not trained and still get thrown back into the classroom. But this time, maybe the teacher knows that I have an issue and they were a little less harsh on me. But that, you know, that again comes with a kind of a sweet side and a sour side because, you know, then the kids start picking on you because you're getting special attention and you don't want attention. And so... And then we had this thing called the corner room and I got in trouble because I just couldn't do my homework. Um, So detentions were so much a part of my life. I, you know, often would show up to detention after school and they would say why I'm there. And I, I I don't know, I'm supposed to be here. I mean, I was, I I was more often than not uh, in some kind of academic probation or detention or whatever. It was, it was just endless. So did you do anything or did you change the way you thought or anything at that time to begin to deal with it? I learned really quickly who could put that funny yellow piece of paper down and write the fastest. And I quickly became friends with those people. I hung around with, I guess what you'd call the smart kids and figured that, you know, maybe this would rub off. Uh, Maybe they could help me. Maybe if I'm friends with them, something will change. And um, these friends are still my friends. And, you know, many are academics, professors, you know, amazingly successful surgeons and what have you. These these were the high achievers. So ironically, I got kind of put in with a lot of kids that were not high achievers. But my friends that I made were the high achievers. And, um, you know, while at my younger years, you know, it was like the, the boys kind of hung out with the boys and the girls would hang out with the girls, but I, I hung out with the girls because they, you know, were on a steeper learning curve. And I, I was like, you know, whatever the heck they're doing, I want that. And then, you know, and then got to be very friendly with them. And I learned really quickly, like, hey, look, if I'm really nice to them, they're going to be nice to me. And so <laughs> I would, you know, go after school and like rake their leaves that they were supposed to do, do whatever chores. I, I would do anything I had to do. And then they would do my homework for me. And we had the only problem that their handwriting was so much better. So I got <laughs> caught on that all the time. But, you know, I still I definitely think I am. And I, and I was then uh, an extrovert. I mean, I, I reached out to people. I solved the problem with people, uh, which also, I think, um, gave me some really great training for trying to build and run companies. I know you've always been kind of into cars, and I know you worked in a factory in high school. You were able to solve an engineering problem that no one was able to solve. Can you share that story and something that you might have learned from it? You know, just as my parents uh, told me that, you know, if you don't go to college and all this, you're going to be working in a factory for the rest of your life. So, you know, I started really young with that concept. Um, But, of course, you know, actually, I didn't mind it. I liked the whole factory thing. Cause it, you know, that, that worked with my brain and guess what? You didn't have to do a lot of reading. And, and a lot of the people I was working with in there didn't know how to read either for various reasons, like not being from this, you know, English wasn't their first language or what have you. 
And so I, I could identify well with them and, and got to be good friends with them. But they, yeah, they had this uh, big machine. This group was working on, um, you know, I was just fascinated by it. I had my own little project I was working on, but they didn't really like me hanging around with them because these were a lot of engineers and pretty sophisticated machine. And I'm just like some kid that was supposed to be essentially sweeping floors. And, and I, um, would spend the nights there, you know, I had nothing else to do. So I would stay up at night sort of modifying this thing and playing with it. And then I put it all back together during the day. I was just fascinated by it. What did that machine do? What was it? What was its purpose? It was ultimately installed in, in uh, General Motors um, parts manufacturing plant. They were making brake shoes. And, and this was a time where they were trying to get out of asbestos and, and they had this new material and they had to bond it. They couldn't rivet the way they used to and so they were working with various coatings and chemistry to try to get this brake shoe to stick to the metal pad and that was essentially what they were trying to solve through this mechanization they were trying to they had a hard time because any any way they clipped it on one there are problems holding on to it there was all these different types of shoes you had to have all these different clips and yeah i just like looking at this thing i'm like well i wonder what what happens they're, they're trying to hold this semi-metallic thing on and and i and i realized it was somewhat magnetic uh you know you you magnet it would be attracted to a magnet and and i um so i i played around with this thing and i put all these magnets on it and realized that you know we didn't need a clip you could just position it and hold it without uh interfering with the chemistry and without touching anything and I, i mean i didn't know for sure that was going on but i knew darn sure i wasn't wasn't scratching it that was one of the issues these clips were you know, you can't break this polymer that was put on this. And it, and it worked great. And so one night I just said, oh, heck with it. I'm, I'm going to go for broke here. And I, I got a bunch of magnets and I put it on this conveyor belt and I got the whole thing working. And the next day we, it, it was, you know, everyone showed up to work in the morning and I had this thing working. And, and it was really interesting. Um, I, you know, I kind of assumed everybody would be really happy. Well, the, the owner was really happy uh, and, and a couple people were impressed and then and a lot of people were really upset and upset that i touched their machine in the first place i think also upset that i solved the problem and they they spent all this time uh, and weren't able to solve the problem you know some of them one of them quit that day they were so frustrated and and i guess that was a, a a turning point in my life where i realized hey maybe i'm really good at something even though there was some positive and negative but you know hey i, I, I was well trained in that at that by that age and the, my calling is machinery. It is working in factories. And, and actually, you know, it turns out my parents were right. I am going to work in a factory the rest of my life. The, <laughs> the only thing I think they missed in there when they were giving me their lectures in my younger years is that I was going to, you know, own the factory. Yeah, own the factory. I love that. A sand pit and a mushroom cloud were in your childhood. What in the world was that about? And was there some realization that came out of that? Oh, I, I had a kind of a fascination with fire, which, you know, I think a lot of kids do. It's it, You get an immediate r- return on on things. You know, you light things. It, it, stuff's happening right in front of you. You don't have to wait. There's no, no delayed gratification. My parents shipped me off to my grandmother uh, um, whenever possible, and she you know, took me through some DuPont plant and uh, I had this little camera and I, you know, I couldn't read, but I was just fascinated and they made gunpowder at this plant, by the way. And so I, um, took a bunch of pictures and, and then I brought them back to my, 
network of friends and said, here, here, what is this stuff? And, and the Google at the time was an encyclopedia set. So, you know, we were pulling books down and they were reading off stuff and, and we were figuring out what the chemicals meant and what they were and, and ultimately figured out where to get them. And so I started you know, basically playing chemistry. I mean, the good news is, is, is things like gunpowder is actually pretty hard stuff to make. And so it, you know, it, there, it, it wasn't like one day there was just this huge bang. I, I got pretty good at, at making it uh, over time. Uh, so it starts as a fizzle and it fizzles faster and it fizzles faster and then it turns into a little bit of a bang and then you can start getting into big bangs. And, um, yeah, I put together this concoction and decided to kind of go for broke here and let's make a big one and see what happens. And I was working through my, um, my co-conspirator on this and he, um, and I, uh, discussed uh, exit strategies and how to get out out of this thing and, uh, but we lit the fire and and you know walked away and stood and stood and stood and nothing and nothing and nothing and then all of a sudden yeah it worked and 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 um you know saw this mushroom cloud i mean it was just like on the movies you know like this nuclear bang and um yeah that one made the papers but you know i that's why whenever i see someone doing something that you know, might not be a good idea, but I always like to try to think a little deeper and, Hey, maybe, maybe there's more going on with this, this young person trying to just, they're just trying to learn. And and that's all I was trying to do. And ironically, and ultimately my last company I sold with a hundred thousand people with fires in their buildings and homes, uh, in a good way, um, you know, heating and creating energy and yep. running power no explosion plants. there, right? Yeah, no, 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 that was, that's controlled combustion. But I, I think, um, you know, there's no question that sort of this fascination of fire um, may have played a role in this last business. And, you know, then you get 100,000 people paying you to do it. and it, it works out really well. Yeah, sure. I mean, it sounds like that at least gave you some satisfaction that, you know, hey, I can create something here and, and have fun while doing it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. We talked about this a little bit. So in your business life, you know, your disability, would you say that it was more of a barrier or a driver of your success? Yeah, there's two angles. Um, the terrible stuff that I, uh, that, that I and so many other people go through uh, to try to get through school really trained me um, in a way that is, is really great for business. I mean, learning multiplication tables, I, I, I don't know. I got news for you. I, I don't see how that helps you run anything later. Um, but Learning how to negotiate with friends to get homework assignments done, um, that, that is helpful. And so, uh, ironically, the fact that the system wasn't set up for me made me better and trained me at, at a young age to get around systems. And when you're an entrepreneur, and especially when you're a disruptor, and that's what I have done and continue to do, you know, you're constantly having to work around the system. And uh, so that's one. And the other is, is just the brain is different. And I learned that, that my, my, um, you know, I got some real positive parts and a lot of dyslexics have, have some talents. And one of them is being able to sort of see three-dimensionally uh, and multi-dimensionally. I mean, you know, parts inside of parts moving and, and I, you know, I didn't know that most people can't do that. I mean, I can have a conversation with you and visualize, you know, V8 engine running with every valve and camshaft and chain and all of it running all together with oil moving and, and, and everything. And I've, I've trained myself since then to visualize sort of molecular movement. And so that's gotten me into really understanding thermodynamics in a, in a whole nother um, way 
It's the different thinkers, people with a different perspective that change the world. People, um, you know, if you're just doing the same thing as everybody else, that's great. That's fine. That's okay. You know, if you're just kind of running the same old gas station on another corner of America, you know, that's not going to change the world. And I think um, anybody with any what what we seem to call disabilities, you, you have a different angle. You know, we've, we've got software now that does this stuff over and over that's the same. And creativity, I think, is what we need more of in, in the economy and to solve a lot of problems. And kind of by definition, if you're, you know, got a disability or you're just a weirdo, uh, uh, I, I say that I say that lovingly because um, I definitely uh, am one and was one and I embrace it and love it now. But, uh, you know, th- those are the ones that solve the problem. I really love what you said that your earlier life really helped you to work around systems. And that's really made, what made you good at what you do. So that's a phenomenal advantage that I think has helped you to get to where you are. You know, in business, one of the critical things to do is to do research. And in these days, increasingly, internet research. And I know you have a unique way of handling that, of doing Google searches. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, it's great. We got this technology and I can, you know, push my finger down and drag the blue thing down and it starts talking to me. And, and that's great, but it, it's still a little more cumbersome. And I, and I would say on net slower than someone who can just read proficiently. So again, you find a workaround. And, and on Google, if you go up there and you hit images and being, um, you know, it turns out a lot of people are really quick. You know, we, we, we are sort of our brains were designed to, to um, get images quickly and, and understand them and hold them, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. Instead of searching sort of in the traditional way of looking through, you know, a bazillion web pages, I go immediately to images. And then I can scan images, I mean, really fast, like just flip right through them and then hit them. And, and uh, often that then leads me to the website that I really want or leads me down a path that is really helpful. You know, sometimes not. And, and it's fast and, and I've gotten and trained a lot of, you know, really proficient readers that work with me, like on this new company to, you know, try that after, you know, your way fails. And I've had a lot of people come back and say, that's really cool because you, you, it is quick. And, it, you know, as it turns out, most stuff in the world sort of has some visual representation to it. You know, good marketers, I, I mean, I, I would certainly tell anyone, like, get some good pictures on, of whatever it is you're doing and get it out there because I can't imagine I'm the only one that does this. Would you say that your, your dyslexia enables you to do that much faster? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I have been tested and, you know, my reading is abysmal, but then, you know, a lot of the other parts of the tests are sort of off the charts. Great. To the point they, you know, I've literally been told we've got to create another test to, to figure out where the, li- where, where the limit here is. And one of them is visual and being able to see things like I, if I um, walk into, let's say a factory and I can, without trying and without even thinking about it, put together all the building blocks in my brain. And I start seeing things sort of as a complete system versus, you know, a snapshot, snapshot, snapshot. In other words, I take my images and I turn it into a, a, a running working movie. Um, and, and that's incredibly beneficial in, in, in a lot of ways. It's much more beneficial now that I know it's something I'm good at. And this isn't the way most people think. It also has been important in the way I communicate to other people. You know, I would describe things, and I always thought I was shooting under, you know, that, that I was just 
being stupid about things and people were kind of rejecting my thoughts and ideas at times. And I realized, well, whoa, I'm, I'm like talking another language here and they don't understand. So I, I, I've had to learn how to, how to describe my thoughts a little differently because, uh, you know, I, I realize I'm, I'm good at thinking sort of in this multidimensional way and, and not everyone is. And so you can't describe it as, as the way I think it. And that, that's been a challenge, but, but it's certainly a lot less challenging than when you don't know that no one understands you. To illustrate that, I've heard you tell a story about a, a certain board proposal that you never could get through. Could you just walk us through what happened before and after you were able to articulate it differently for them? Yeah, I wanted to take my last company in, into a slight tangent. But I said, you know, look, we need, we need to develop a, a better press for, you know, we're, we're making this fuel and we needed a better press. And, and I said, I got an idea how to do this. And, you know, I was, I was getting pushback. I was getting pushback for a couple of years and I was confused by it because to me it was like, this is kind of a no brainer. I mean, we're going to invest a few million dollars in this thing and we have a potential to save a few million dollars every quarter. You know, I, I was proposing is about a 50 to 80% certainty we, we could do this. So it wasn't like some, you know, long shot Hail Mary risk here. And they just didn't get it. It, then dawned on me, I'm like, maybe uh, I'm talking over them, not under them. I'm making assumptions that they understand all the nuances here. And I'm, I'm just trying to give them a summary. And maybe I got to break this down into what I thought was baby talk. So I break this whole proposal down and I'm looking at this thing. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, one thing I can tell you about managing boards is that you got to try to hit it right. You don't want to insult their intelligence, but you also have to communicate to them. And so I tested it and I went to my, um, CFO and said, Hey, look, you know, this is, this is what I want to propose. And he, you know, he, he was on my side trying to make this thing work. And he looks up to me. He's like, now I get it. And I just looked at him like, when you get what? And I thought he was going to say something flip it. Cause I was worried this was just going to be insulting. It was just, you know, I was talking baby talk and, and, and he like said, no, this is awesome. Love it. And then we proposed it at the board and, and got the money and funding and, you know, I got what I wanted. And the lesson there was, is that I was just, you know, it's like showing the picture of the sunset to someone who couldn't see it. And it, it just wasn't working. And I had to break it down in the pieces to explain what was going on. And then they immediately got it. And, and, and it was like, we never even had a conversation about this thing before. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, now we get it. They just said, oh, hey, this is a great idea. We really should do this. I mean, it was just a complete 180. Yeah, so they didn't even realize that you were quote-unquote, dumbing it down for them. They thought it was just a great new idea. I love it. And when I look back at it now, and now that I've gotten better at this, I'm realizing, you know, I wasn't dumbing anything down. I, I, I just was trying to explain it the way I saw it. But the problem is, is that's not the way a lot of minds think. So it was, I was talking in a different language to them. Yeah, again, getting back to this, this idea that you're, you're, you realize that your brain works differently, and then having to translate that into the way that somebody else thinks about it, almost like, Here's how one gear fits together with this gear, as opposed to talking about the whole system as a whole, and then not them not understanding that there are even gears involved. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, to carry on with that, I was I was like showing them the outside of a transmission, and I wasn't explaining how this was going to work. Is there anything in the beginning of your career that you didn't know that you learned later on that contributed to your success? About eight years ago, when I got a kind of a totally bizarre call from the Kauffman Foundation, which is a big nonprofit that studies 
um, entrepreneurship and and how businesses grow and a really substantial, very substantially funded and large nonprofit. And I've uh, followed them, and so I was um, a little taken back that, that you know they found out that. I'm dyslexic because it it just wasn't something I talked to anybody about. But without getting into the story of how they learned that, they were very nice about it, very polite. And they said, hey, look, we just want to take you out. and We're going to have this six entrepreneurs and we're going to have about you know 20 scientists and we just want to spend three days with you. All expenses paid and, you know, this lovely place out in Arizona. Yeah, I was like, oh, what the heck? You know, how bad could this be? So I, um, you know, I, I did that. And that was kind of my reintroduction to dyslexia. But this time it was just so much more positive. It made me realize that, you know, maybe maybe this isn't all bad. Maybe there's actually some real talent here. And, and, and maybe my success up to that time had to do with with was because of my dyslexia, not not because I found a way to beat it. It completely changed my attitude. And that three days out there, honestly, completely changed my life as I knew it. And all of a sudden I went from, you know, hiding this terrible thing that I connected mostly with my school and I found a way to beat it and work around it in the, in what I call the real world, growing businesses and, 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 you know, living life like, like anybody buying a home and having a car. And, you know, I, I just always found a way around it. But now I, I, I for the first time said, wait a minute, there's possibly a lot of good things here. And then I started reflecting back on my life and I was like, you know, it's just like all of a sudden this enemy became my best friend. Yeah. I love what you say. It almost like your dyslexia was an advantage that you had over other people. I love yeah. that. I love that. You know, today I, I emphatically believe that, you know, in school I would have done anything to get rid of it, anything, anything to get rid of it. You know, now you couldn't, take it from me. I wouldn't sell it for any price. Um, you know, I have a great ability to, or a better ability than a lot to see complex systems as a whole. And so what would happen to me a lot in systems, when I say systems, it could be a mechanical system, but it can also be like the system of how a business works. And, and very often someone would come to me, you know, a lot of times I'd be like, well, no, I mean, that, that won't work. And I would know why, but I didn't take the time to properly communicate that. And I, and I think now what I do is I say, Hey, that's a great idea. Let, give me a day to think about that. And, uh, and I'll get back to you. And then I can have a much more thoughtful response. And I've learned patience, uh, just to, um, I, th I think when you're sort of, uh, feel like you're the, at the low end of a totem pole and you're being pushed around and shoved around, you tend to try to run harder to make up for time. And I've learned later in life that that, that isn't necessarily going to get you to your goal any faster. And so I, I've just gotten more patient. Many young people who are at work have a difficulty in deciding to tell their employer about whether they have a disability or not whether it's because they feel like the employer won't understand or even if they're able to explain it, that they're not going to be able to get the accommodations that they need. What would you say to people who might be struggling with this kind of issue? Whether to let someone know about a disability is obviously a very case-by-case -case thing. It, when you come to the conclusion that this would be um, helpful for people to know what you're dealing with, there's two ways to do this. And I believe there's a right way, and, and I believe there's a way that, that just isn't going to be beneficial. Focus on the positives. If I needed 
let's say I, I was working in an office situation, which I can assure you won't happen. But if that was my job and I was just having a hard time reading and I needed to have, you know, let's say a dragon software on my computer so I could read, you know, we have the computer assist me to read and, and to dictate and to write. One way you can do it is is you could go to an employer and say, hey, look, um, you know, I got this problem and kind of starting right off that there's, a, that, that there's something broken that needs to be fixed. The other way to do it is you just go in with a totally different attitude and say, hey, dude, I can do this better. I can do this faster. And I got this great software that I think is going to increase my productivity. I mean, that's what people want to hear. And, and you're communicating the same thing. If you want to at the same time say, hey, look, you know, I've got a little more of a challenge. But with this software, I can be even faster than most people. You know, just show show the positive side of this, because I, I think too often we're just focusing on all the negatives. And of course, yeah, there's negatives. Trust me. <laughs> I know. But there's all these positives. I love what you said about turning the way that you frame it to something positive. It's I can do better for you if you're able to do this small thing for me. So I love the way you said that. And one of the things that the success of your business has allowed you to do is to fly a plane. Now, I know that there have got to have been challenges for someone who is dyslexic to become a pilot, do all the licensing. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you overcame some of those challenges? So school and, and testing is something that, you know, the moment I dropped out of uh, school, uh, I, I went to college just for like one semester. You know, I was determined never, ever to go back. But I, um, you know, I was my company was kind of scattered all over the Northeast here, and I was spending an awful lot of time. I um, said, you know, geez, this would make an awful lot of sense to have a plane and be able to get myself and others to, to where we need to go. I kind of did it backwards. I, I bought the plane having no license and then hired an instructor. Um, and, and of course, you know, look, I was lucky enough one to afford the plane and two to afford a private instructor. I explained to this instructor my challenge and, and we just started day one. I'm like, all right, here's the deal, man. I really can't read. I, I like to, you know, take things one bite at a time here and let me just focus on flying this machine because that's what I understand is the most important. And then we'll work towards communication and then we'll back into all these written tests that I dreaded so much. And then uh, again, like the Google searching with the images, I'm like, someone must have a video. And, and so I don't, you know, they, they, of course, the first day drop these huge books on you, which, you know, I bought just because I was expected to buy them. I never opened a page, <laughs> but I found this great video set and it, it really talked about flying and it had all these great three dimensional images and stuff that I could really soak into and really got and, and then they also walked through the, the test part and they did it in a video form. And so I just watched this over and over and over. And then I researched it. I figured out that they only have a total of 1,000 total questions in their system on the written test. And, and I knew I'd be all right on the, on the flight test, which, by the way, is the most important one. But there's numerous written tests, actually. I mean, because I'm an instrument-rated pilot now and I've had to go through a layer and layer and layer of tests so one, I got myself as familiar as I could with the way they asked the questions. And I just had to, frankly, work a lot harder than most would to to just make sure I, I understand the terms right. I understand um, I could read them and read them fairly quickly because they do not do not tolerate in flying. And, you know, and possibly I can see the argument for this, like I'm, I'm not trying to dump on the FAA, but they are in, totally intolerant of differences. 
to the point they will revoke a license if they find out, let's say, you're taking Ritalin for ADHD. You will not fly. And I just know this because a friend of mine was a pilot, and uh, they found out about it, and they revoked his license. So ultimately, um, just had to work a lot harder. It's an un, you know, it's a timed test. Um, you go in there, you take, um, you're on video. They read you the riot act that it's literally against the law to cheat on this, not just we'll, we'll, we'll kick you out of the class. And so there's no aids, there's nothing. I pulled through it. I did um, well on some of the tests. I did not so well, but passed on some other ones. I had a um, FAA inspector that was um, really, really, really harsh on me. And this was a, a, a great lesson. And, you know, this is the guy that does the flight test, but then he has an oral test before. And he was just asking me a lot of like book stuff, you know, like uh, if you have a this problem or that problem, how many days do you have to report it to the FAA? You know, the stuff that really isn't about flying a plane and being safe. And, you know, I was bombing it and he was frustrated and he was getting all over me and he literally stormed out of the room. And I was like, oh, boy, this is over. And then he comes marching back up and he says, well, your instructor is convincing me. You know what you're doing and you just got something going on. Would you like to explain that to me? And I'm like thinking to myself, OK, maybe I made a mistake not explaining this to him. So I launched into this whole dyslexia thing. And well, guess what? He's like, me, too. And all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, wow. everything changed. He closed the book. He said, let's just go fly a plane. I said, thank you. And, and we got into the, there and, you know, and, and he, he, um, ended the test early, uh, in the flight test, um, landed the plane. He, uh, turned around, issued the license and just said, sorry, and you're awesome. And turned around and left. And that was that. Uh, the, the only change there was, is he got to know who I was and all of a sudden it changed everything. That's a fantastic concept. If you take the time to get to know someone and that can change everything. Hey, Steve, is there someone with a disability who you most respect? And if so, is there something that you've learned or that we can learn from that person? I just think there's so many. I've got, you know, one friend that is dyslexic and a quadriplegic. This guy, um, you know, is an executive at a huge company. He's got a great job with absolutely everything going against him. If I understand it correctly, Stephen Hawking, who, speaking of a disability, here's someone that can move one part of his lip. And then this person in the wheelchair with dyslexia was on the team to create the device that I, I believe it's Intel uh, Corporation that put this thing together to get Stephen Hawking reconnected to the world, even though he had absolutely no speech at this point and just could move one part of his mouth. And I'm probably way oversimplifying this, but this is how I understand it. And I just like to watch somebody with, you know, quadriplegic and dyslexic go help someone that's got some terrible disease that can only move one part of their lip, be able to give, you know, speak at a, at conferences doesn't get better. Absolutely right. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for sharing some time with us today and sharing your rich life experience with us. I've learned so much. Any final thoughts you want to share about disability and success with listeners out there? Yeah. So I think, boy, anybody out there, uh, especially with a non-obvious disability of, of any kind or difference, and I, I extend that to, you know, even if someone hasn't been sort of labeled but knows that, you know, whether 
you know, it's anxiety or whatever the issue is uh, that you feel you don't fit in exactly right. Um, take the time to think through how to describe what it is you feel and the way you see it to someone else. And the, and the other thing is, is to you're quickly shown the negatives, but, but I can guarantee you every time there's a positive. And I have not met anybody yet in my life. And I've met a lot of people with, with all kinds of different disabilities, differences every time. You know, I'm just looking, always looking for the advantage. And, and there always is an advantage. If you're, you know, unable to walk and you're in a wheelchair, you, you know, you're seeing the world differently. And yeah, of course, it's really frustrating when you come to a set of stairs or a curb that doesn't have a proper ramp or whatever. But you do learn things that the rest of us don't see that can walk and, you know, hearing, vision, you know, whatever it is, you have a different angle. And the world um, is usually a lot hungrier for that perspective. They just don't know how to even ask for it because they don't see it that way. you got to, like, sell it a little or push it a bit. And the better you can describe who you are and how you do it and in terms that other people understand, I think you're going to have more success in describing, um, communicating what it is you want to communicate to the world. There's always a positive. And, and just make sure you're spending as much time focusing on the positive as you are trying to deal with the negative. Again, Steve, thanks so much. We really look forward to our next meeting, whatever that might be. This concludes our chat with entrepreneur Steve Walker. Steve has shown us that using the practice of finding workarounds in your disability to teach us about finding creative solutions in all areas of our life not dwelling on the negatives of disability, but looking for the positive, and always looking for the unique gift and advantage that you bring to the table, have enabled him to achieve incredible success. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you've learned a tip or two for your own life. Join us next time when we speak with Jim Gibbons, CEO of Goodwill Industries International. I remember asking, you think people have reasonable expectations of me? You think the my blindness gets in the way of that. And he said, oh, man, yeah, people think you're almost normal. <laughs> you can find out more information about Team Excelability at www.teamexcelability.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Team Excelability or on Twitter at Team Excelability. Thank you and have a blessed day. Thank you.